Father, we're so grateful this morning to gather as the church again another Sunday that we can come together as a family and we can be encouraged in our faith. We can have the truth of the gospel spoken over us. We can sing to you and Lord, what grace it is that we get to open the scriptures and read your word and learn about you and be reminded of who you are and what you've called us to. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we jump into the scriptures that you would just teach us. And, and Lord, as we've been singing about all morning, we've been singing about how you promise in your scriptures that your kingdom will be filled with all peoples, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be together in your kingdom. And Lord, that's such good news. And as we've been saying all morning and singing about, we want to be a church that really believes, really just be a place where all people can find joy in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray as we look into your word this morning that, Lord, we would be encouraged in that truth. Lord, I pray through the scriptures we read this morning that you would give us eyes to see every single person on this planet the way that you see them. Would you give us the heart of compassion for every single person in our midst that you have? We ask for these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So my family moved from Shreveport, Louisiana to Herndon, Virginia when I was five years old. So Herndon is essentially my home, but I, I had a southern family and lived in, the law, in the, lived in the south long enough to pick up a fantastic southern accent that northern Virginia robbed from me. But uh, as a kid... I wasn't quite old enough to understand that there were going to be pretty significant cultural differences between the Deep South and Northern Virginia, which is not the South, okay? And so I'll never forget the day that we moved into our house here in Herndon. Um, and the next morning after that, my brother and I decided to wake up early in the morning. I don't remember the time, but I remember it was early. I think he was seven or eight years old at the time. And we thought we'd just go out and knock on doors and meet our new neighbors. And so we wake up early in the morning, and I can remember that moment going to our next-door neighbor's house, the Hoffmans, and knocking on the door, and, and Gary comes to the door in his robe, and it's clear we got him out of bed. And uh, all of a sudden, he's got two southern boys staring him in the face, just chatting his ear off, you know, like, well, hey, y'all, good morning. We're just so glad that we're your new neighbors, wanted to meet you. And he's just staring at us in kind of the way that you, the only response you can muster up is blinking, you know. Who are these strange boys from the south that just moved in next to me and got me out of bed early in the morning? It, it, it seemed that things were a bit different in northern Virginia than they were in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, we actually ended up becoming great friends with the Hoffmans and a lot of different neighbors on our street, but you know, when you think about it, there's actually been a massive cultural shift even over the last few decades when it comes to how we interact with our neighbors. 
Uh, It's almost as if today, especially in our area of the country here in Northern Virginia, if someone knocks on your door, it's kind of like, who's knocking on my door? Right? I mean, it's one of those things where you always, I mean, I do this, you kind of try to peek out the window in such a way that you're not seen so you can see who's there so you can decide if you're going to pretend to be home or not home and hope they'll walk away, right? Because nowadays, if someone knocks on your door, it's either UPS or FedEx, or it's someone trying to sell you something. Even we here at Grace Hill, we've gone door to door in the neighborhoods around here in Herndon to tell people about the church. And I bet five, if we're generous, 10% of people answer the door and we knock on their door. It seems, it, it seems over the years we've become more fearful, more suspicious of the stranger. It's become more and more comfortable to only interact with the familiar and avoid the strange or the unknown. And I really believe that God has commissioned the church not to avoid interaction with the stranger, but to welcome in, to love, and befriend the stranger. And so this morning, we're going to continue this sermon series that we've been doing on the vision of Grace Hill Church. And this is what I want to talk about. Because our vision as a church is to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. Last week, we spent the whole sermon talking about what we mean by the word church. Church is a loaded word. There's a lot of different definitions of church, a lot of different views on what a church is. And so we spent some time last week talking about, well, what do we mean when we say we want to be a church? And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go to our website or podcast and you can listen to that. But this morning, we want to spend some time on this next part. We want to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. What do we mean by all people? What do we mean by a church that is for all people? And that's the question we're after. And so I want us to go to Acts chapter 17 to get an answer to that question. And so before I read it, as always, let me just give you a little bit of context here. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 16. And there, Paul is in Athens, Greece. And he is waiting for Timothy and Silas, some of his partners, to show up. And so Paul's on one of his missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, while Paul was waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas, he decides he's going to go do some preaching. And so, as he always does, whenever he enters into a city, he finds the synagogue and he preaches there. But he also finds the marketplaces and he preaches the gospel there as well. And so eventually Paul would be invited um, by some philosophers there in Athens to share his message at the Areopagus, a place where matters of religion and morality were debated, okay, in, in Athens. And as we read this account of Paul evangelizing in Athens, preaching the gospel, we're going to see in this text a theology of all people. When the scripture says all people, what does it mean? And we're going to see how that theology impacts 
Paul's way of sharing the gospel in Athens. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look for a theology of all people. All right, so Acts chapter 17, we're going to read verses 16 to 34. 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Hey, share with us what you're presenting. We want to hear it, debate it. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They liked to debate ideas. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation, speaking of Adam, from Adam comes every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and Paul begins to quote some of their poets and philosophers, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Speaking of Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, I didn't practice these names, and a, women, uh, and a woman named uh, Damaris and others with him. So Paul preaches the gospel to these philosophers, these Epicurean and 
Stoic philosophers in Athens, Greece. And we see at the end that some believed and some were converted. Others wanted to hear more. Others thought that what he was saying was, was crazy. And there's so much that we could pull from this text. I mean, you could preach a whole sermon series on all different kinds of things here. So there's no way we're going to like even scratch the surface of what we can pull out of Acts 17 this morning. And so as I said, I, I want us to look at the kind of theology Paul was operating on when it comes to this phrase of all people. And in this text, we're going to find three truths, okay? So three truths when it comes to a theology of all people. Three truths about every single person on this planet. So let's go through those three. Truth number one is this. Truth number one, God made every single person. God made every single person. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, all people, life and breath and everything. See, Paul, as he's in Athens, he takes notice of all the idols around him and the different religions and the paganism that was going on in that day. And he sees that their idols were made of gold and silver and stone, and they were enshrined in these man-made temples. And so Paul makes the point that God is not made by humans as your idols are. God does not dwell in a man-made temple like these temples that you have built are. No, rather God made us. We didn't fashion God. He fashioned us. He is the one who has given us life and breath. We have not given him life. And you know, I think when we think of this truth that God made every single person, I think it's easy for me to meditate on this truth when it comes to me. Right? I'm a creation of God. And to think of these wonderful psalms like Psalm 139 that says, you know, you were formed uh, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And these psalms are so encouraging because they remind us of how intimately God knows us and how he specifically created us. But think about this. God put just as much care and detail and attention into creating your neighbor as he did you. Just as much for your boss and your coworker, for the panhandler on the street, to the terrorist plotting an attack, to the soldiers that are hunting him down, to the students who go to this school, to the person sitting right next to you, God made the Apostle Paul in the same way, and he made the philosophers he was debating in the exact same way. God has made and given breath and life to every single person. He formed their inward parts. He knitted them together in their mother's womb. Each and every person is fearfully and wonderfully made. So this automatically, in a Christian worldview, this automatically elevates each and every person's value. 
no matter what they've done or who they are or where they're from. It automatically elevates every person's dignity in the Christian worldview, no matter who they are, because they were made by God. There is no one who is inconsequential, no one who is random, no one who is dispensable, no one that we are not called to love, no one that is not worth fighting for. Every single person is someone God cares about. And that leads to our second truth. Truth number two is this. So truth one is God made every single person. Truth two, God places every single person. Look at verses 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God has specifically and individually placed every single person geographically and chronologically. I mean, look at, and look at verse 27, that they should seek God for the purpose of them finding God. God placed these philosophers in Athens at this time when the Apostle Paul was rolling through town that they may hear the gospel. Think of your story. How did you first hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to faith? I came to know God because my parents taught me the gospel. God placed me in a family in Shreveport, Louisiana so that I might find him. Uh, there are people in this church who are not following Jesus. God placed them in Herndon, Virginia, at the Herndon Festival, walking past the Grace Hill tent while we were passing out flyers. And lo and behold, that flyer informed them that there was a church meeting just right down the street from their house, walking distance to their house. God placed them in that house. God placed our church in that school, Drainsville Elementary, even though we didn't want to be there. We wanted to be here. And I prayed, God, why can't we be at Herndon Middle? Why are we at Drainsville right now? Why can't we be at Herndon Middle? Well, here's why, so that they would come to find God. And they did. Where were you when you heard the gospel and responded? Where did God place you? What were the circumstances? What was the situation? Because it was all orchestrated by God. And so think about this. God has placed your neighbors. God has placed your boss at work and your coworkers. God has placed the classmates in your kids' classroom. God has placed the kids on your kids' sports teams. God has placed the people in your gym class. God has placed the people on social media that you are interacting with. God has placed these people where they are so that they might find him. And if God has placed these people in the same path as you, you who know the gospel, I wonder what might be the means through which God plans on them finding him. And we know God wants all people to find him. We know this because truth number three, 
God calls every single person to repentance. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance, talking about the Old Testament times before the gospel was fully revealed. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Bible is clear. Every single person on this planet will face the judgment of God. God has called them to repent of their sin. And so here's how Paul will also speak of this in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. Paul says it like this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, all people, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This message, this gospel is for all people. No distinction. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So so think about this. Your neighbor will face the judgment of God. And so will your boss and your coworkers and the people you see every day at the gym. And they have been called by God specifically to repent. And God has provided them a savior. In Christ Jesus. But how are they going to believe the gospel about this Savior, Jesus Christ, unless they hear about the gospel? And how are they going to hear about the gospel unless someone tells them? And how are they going to be told unless God places them in the path of someone who knows the good news? This is the theology of all people in Acts 17. God has made all people. He has placed all people. And he has called all people to repentance. And the people of the church, us, have been commissioned by God to be the ones who see people through this lens. We gotta see people through the lens of they've been made by God, placed by God in our midst, and they have been called by God to repent. And God has called every single one of us to see the people around us in this way and to understand that God has specifically placed us and placed them that they may hear the gospel. We got to see that, live our lives through that lens. Listen, there's no detour in your life, no circumstance, no setback that is not a part of God's plan to place you where he needs you. There's never been an accident in your life if you're a follower of Christ 
where God has not placed you specifically for a purpose that he has. And we see that in our text this morning in Acts 17. Paul understands this theology of all people, and he takes advantage of it, especially this opportunity in Athens. Listen, Paul did not plan to stop in Athens. He was taking a ship to his next destination, and this was as far as they would take him. So he got dropped off in Athens, and he had to wait for Timothy and Silas to show up. So Paul was there in Athens, but you know what he believed? He believed this was not a coincidence. This was not an accident. This wasn't just some, okay, I get to spend some vacation time in Athens. This was God has placed me here, and God has placed them here so that they might find God. And so let's go share. Let's go talk to people. Let's get to know the city And as we look at Paul's methodology here in Athens, we find something really interesting. Paul clearly was a student of their culture. He was observant of their religion and beliefs and customs. He knew some of their literature. And he used that information to communicate the gospel in a way that they could relate to. And we think about the culture that we live in today. As we mentioned before, this Culture where we're just kind of suspicious and and uncomfortable around the stranger, around the people that we don't know, and we prefer to be surrounded by those who are familiar. When we think about that culture, I mean, well, if you just if you just go to the airport, if you ride on the metro, right? It's this culture where everyone's got their nose and their phones, and everyone's got their headphones in. No one's acknowledging anyone. Just kind of this avoidance of the stranger. When we think about that. And like Paul did in Athens, we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of the kind of culture that we exist in and then be strategic in how we communicate the gospel. That's what Paul did in Athens. God will always use people who boldly preach on the streets. He always will. But in our culture today, I don't believe street preaching or even door-to-door evangelism is the most strategic way of effectively sharing the gospel. God will always use those methods. But like Paul strategically reacted to the culture in Athens, we have to do the same thing today. What is going to most strategically communicate the gospel in our culture? And I'm convinced that the most strategic way that we can share the gospel in our culture today here in Northern Virginia is through the regular practice of biblical hospitality. See, last week, we talked about the practice of biblical fellowship. We studied Acts 2, and we learned that one of the marks of the early church was their devotion to uh, fellowship. And if you remember, that word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinos, which means common. So this is our definition of fellowship. It's this, the intentional use of one's own resources, so whether that's your time, your money, your talents, your, uh, your home, your dinner table, the intentional use of your resources to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, to serve those whom you have all things in common with. A true biblical church is one where everyone sees the means that they have, the things that they have as ways to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. We fellowship with those we have all things in common with. Because we share a belief in Christ, that means we have all things in common. So that's biblical fellowship. 
But we also see in Scripture that the church is also called to biblical hospitality. So here's how we'll define hospitality. The intentional use of one's own resources, your time, your money, your home, your dinner table, your talents and skills, anything, to befriend and serve a stranger. Biblical hospitality. A stranger is someone who is just different from you. You don't have all things in common with a stranger like you do with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we tend to think of the word stranger as kind of a negative, but it's just a descriptive word. It's not negative. We serve our brothers and sisters in Christ through fellowship, and we serve strangers through hospitality. And the Bible calls us to both. Uh, Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, fellowship, and seek to show hospitality. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And to give you a vision, because I just want to kind of give all of us this picture of what do I mean by biblical hospitality. So to give you a vision of that, I want to read a long quote. I never do this in sermons, but I want to read you this long quote uh, from Rosaria Butterfield, one of my favorite authors. Read anything she writes. Um, And she just came out with a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key about biblical hospitality. I want you to hear her description. Look at this, and we'll have it on the screen. She says this, radically ordinary hospitality is reflected in Christian homes that resemble those of the first century. Such homes are communal. They are deep and wide in Christian tradition and practice. They do not apologize for what they believe. As Christians, we are a set apart people and we do things differently. We don't worry about what the unbelieving neighbors think because the unbelieving neighbors are right here sharing at our table and they are more than happy to tell us what they think. Radically ordinary hospitality characterizes those who don't fuss over different worldviews represented at the dinner table. The truly hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. They don't buy the world's bunk about this. They know that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. And they courageously accept and respect people who think differently from them. They don't worry that others will misinterpret their friendship Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. And it defines those who are willing to suffer with others for the sake of gospel sharing and gospel living. Those who care more for integrity than appearances. Engaging in radically ordinary hospitality means we provide the time necessary to build strong relationships with people who think differently than we do, as well as build strong relationships from within the family of God, hospitality, fellowship. Radically ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Radically ordinary hospitality gives evidence of faith in Jesus' power to save. It doesn't get dug in over politics or culture or where someone stands on current events. It knows what conversion means, what identity in Christ does, and what repentance creates. See, I agree with Rosaria Butterfield that in our post-Christian world, where people are skeptical of what we believe, the evangelistic weapon that we must become skilled at wielding in sharing the gospel is the regular practice of hospitality. 
the regular practice of pursuing relationships with people who do not know Jesus and are different from us. Yes, this means befriending, serving, and loving people who think differently. The moral and immoral, the rich and the poor, the straight and the LGBTQ community, the right and the left, the citizen and the immigrant. Having them in our homes, getting to know them, sharing a meal with them, getting to know their worldviews, respecting what they have to say, but building a context so that you can speak the gospel into their life winsomely like Paul did here in Athens. As a church, we must use hospitality with the express goal of turning strangers around us into family. Our vision is to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. All people. Everyone is welcome at this church because we believe all people can find joy in Jesus. We believe God wants all people to find joy in Jesus. From the most successful people, according to the world, to those who have made a complete train wreck of their life. They're all welcome here. And I believe God has placed this church where we are that all people here might know the gospel. You know, the word for stranger in the Bible is xenos. It's where we get the word xenophobia from. And although we may not be xenophobic in a racist way, I think our culture is a little xenophobic when it comes to how we like to avoid strangers and be surrounded by the familiar. And I think the church has an opportunity today in our culture to demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates that. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes it that we don't have to be afraid of people who are different After all, this is what God did for us in and through Jesus. Because of our sin, we were strangers of God. We weren't welcome in the kingdom. We were dirty, unclean, immoral, sinful. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to us. Jesus took up residence with us. He lived in our world. He dined at the table of sinners and gave everything he had his whole life so that we might know and have fellowship with God. I mean, don't you understand that your very salvation is due to the radical hospitality of God? God reaching out to people who were definitely unworthy of him. And then so we can read Ephesians 2 in verse 19. It says this, where Paul rejoices, says, So then, listen, you, follower of Jesus, you are no longer strangers. Zenos there. You are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it's for this exact reason that uh, we are launching... um, community groups again in our church starting in September with the vision of being groups that practice hospitality together. And so today after the service, you're going to have the opportunity to go into the lobby and to sign up for a group. Uh, Community groups are groups that we have that meet in people's homes throughout the week for the purpose of biblical fellowship like we talked about last week and biblical hospitality that we're talking about this week. And we're launching six groups. So you see those groups listed in your bulletin there. 
and you can sign up for those in the lobby afterwards. But our desire is that these groups will be a source of not just fellowship, but where we are all challenged to live lifestyles of hospitality. Each of our groups are going to have a leader, but they're also going to have a mission leader. And that mission leader will be asked to lead the group in practicing hospitality together, engaging people whom God has placed near us so that they may hear the gospel. So we're excited to have groups start up again here at Grace Hill. And we encourage everyone who calls Grace Hill their church home to get in a group, commit to a group, go sign up, and you can do that afterwards today. But I want to I wanna close our time together this morning by challenging all of us to evaluate our participation, our personal participation in biblical hospitality. Do we regularly seek to get to know our neighbors and other people that we cross paths with? Are we intentional with them? Do we spend time to get to know them? Uh, do we give into the culture that says that strangers are scary and weird and you should just stick with the familiar, the people you know? Uh, I think we all have different excuses for maybe why we had struggle with this kind of hospitality. Maybe we're too busy. Northern Virginia, everyone's busy. Maybe we say we don't have the right personality for it. Uh, maybe we're just afraid to put ourselves out there and knock on someone's door and strike up a conversation. What's the reason you have? What's the reason this week that might stop you from actually finally learning the name of someone who lives next to you? Or even inviting them over for dinner? God personally created everyone we cross paths with. He has placed them in your path and he has called them to repentance. And this morning, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite you forward to the table that has the Lord's Supper on it. And as you come forward with the table with the Lord's Supper, I want God's radical hospitality and the bread and the wine that is on the table to be a motivation for you to invite people to your table. Because as we come together as a church to the table that has the bread and the wine, we are reminded of God's radical hospitality to invite us to his. You're invited back to the table this week to be reminded of what Christ has done for you so that you are no longer a stranger to the family of God. Reminded of how Christ stepped out of his comfort in heaven, of his home in heaven into this world so that we might be saved. And so as you eat the bread, be reminded of the broken body of Christ. And as you drink the juice, be reminded of his shed blood. And ask the Lord to give you a love for the strangers around you and the desire to see them share the same meal with you as family. Ask the Lord to give you that heart and that motivation. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, though, I want to just ask you uh, not to come forward to get bread and, and the wine because I want you to know that God has, I want you to know that God has called you to repent. And he desires for you to know the gospel and to be saved as well. He has made you. He's placed you in this service today so that you might find him and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will face the judgment of God, but there is forgiveness available in and through Jesus. So believe in Jesus, believe in his death, believe in his resurrection, and you will be saved. 
And if you want to pray about that, if that's something you want to talk about, or if you're ready to cry out to God now in response of faith, come find me while everyone's getting communion. I'll be over here, and I'd love to pray with you in that time. But Grace Hill, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to come forward and share this meal. We'll have people... uh, We'll have people serving this meal to you up front, so come forward, take a little bit of the cracker and dip it in the juice, and you can eat it there. But we want to share this meal together and enjoy the incredible hospitality of God. And may that motivate us to be hospitable to our neighbors that live around us. Let me pray for us. Father, as I prayed earlier, would you give us eyes that view other people the way that you do? Would you give us eyes that see people and we automatically think that we are looking at someone who was fearfully and wonderfully made by you? that we would see someone that you have placed, that they might find you, that we would see someone, Lord, that you have called to repentance and will face your judgment if they do not put their faith in Christ and his work on the cross. Lord, give us a new heart for our neighbors. Give us a new heart for our coworkers. Give us a new heart for the people that we encounter at school at the gym, at the grocery store. Lord, our culture here in Northern Virginia, it's so busy, it's so self-focused, it's so what's next on the calendar driven. It's so hard to just stop and see people and have the kind of love and compassion on them that you do. Lord, would you create that within our heart? Help us to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus, all people. Lord, I pray Grace Hill would be the kind of church where someone who's made a train wreck of their life and they've lost everything and they just feel dejected and as if no one cares about them, that they would walk into our doors and they would feel the kind of compassion that Jesus would have on them. Help us to get over, Lord, our self-importance or our discomfort of people that are strangers to us. We love you, Lord, and we know that only you can produce this kind of culture inside our church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to see this vision happen. We love you, Lord, and we pray as we come to the table and we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the security that we have in our identity in Christ and with a motivation to invite others to this very table. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.